The 0-2. Left side, Swanson. To first. The Browns are world champions. At 10.23 Central Time, Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021, the Atlanta Braves have officially overcome all obstacles that were put in front of them, and they are world champions, winning it in six and delivering Atlanta their second championship. Time to start the Sportscasters. Ten years of the Sportscasters. It started five years before that little stinker across from me was even born back in 2011. And here we are today at the tail end of season 11. uh, As we have only a few shows left in 2021. And it's been a great year for the show. And that great year continues today. As today we have the debut of Jonathan Vilma. On the sportscasters. Yes, honey. Who is Jonathan Vilma? <laughs> That's a good question. Jonathan Vilma was one of the New Orleans Saints that won the Super Bowl. <gasps> yeah, he was one of the Super Bowl winning Saints. And he is now a broadcaster on Fox. He works with my friend Kenny Albert. And I want to give a huge thanks to Kenny uh, for setting this up for us. As he helped as well as uh, Megan from Fox Sports, but Kenny Albert's going to make his debut on the podcast today. Also on the podcast today is Rich Podolsky, uh, the author of a fantastic book, one I liked a really lot, called You Are Looking Live, uh, the NFL Today, uh, a revolutionary show, and we do about an hour, Rich and I, and it's a great interview. It'll be after the book club uh, book club uh, part. But before we get to any of that, it's a great show, right? Season 11, episode 23, Steve Bennett here. And before we get started, I got a couple questions for Paula Bennett uh, since we have her here. First question, Paula. Mm-hmm. How's school going? Good. Yeah, are you learning? What's the best thing you've learned so far? Um, The best thing I've learned so far is lullabies. Lullabies? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you like music class? Yeah, like... Make sure you're talking into that mic. Like we um do... I don't mean like music class. I meant at my classroom. Oh, in your classroom you do lullabies? Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, like um, we did where we have a little lamb. We had a little lamb. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty. Why don't you tell the listeners about the other podcast that you're a co-host of? Um, The 24-inch podcast. Yeah, what's that about? It's about Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan. Okay. Well, what else is going on in your life? Um, in my life, today I'm going to see my uncle, Uncle Anthony. Yeah, Uncle Anthony's home for the weekend. Uh-huh. You just had Halloween? Yeah, I did. And I there was like a abandoned house where I was trick-or-treating and I got scared there. Oh, you're okay though, right? <laughs> yep. It was just fun. It's not actually fun. It's really a bad house. Yeah, a really creepy one? Mm-hmm. 
Oh, no. What else is going on? What's coming up? I'm coming up. What are you most looking forward to? Looking forward to is going to Daddy's second grandma. Okay. Because that's a special year for Daddy. Because Oh, Grandma Marie's house for Thanksgiving? Mm-hmm. Is that what you mean? Yeah, because it's a special day for him because it's he can see his family. Yeah, we get we do the Bennett family on Thanksgiving, right? Yep. Yeah. All right, now you said you might have a couple questions for me. Mm-hmm. All right, what did you want to ask me? But you got to speak into that microphone, yeah. all right? Focus on what you're doing. What did you want to ask me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The first thing is, what are you going to do for the weekend? <laughs> All right, well, like you said, my brother's coming home for the weekend, so we're going to get some dinner with him tonight. I'm going to watch his hockey team tomorrow. I got the Saints game on Sunday. Yeah, so I got a busy weekend. Yeah, not. We're going to make a poster for him. Yeah, we're going to make a poster. Say, let's go, Coach Dazer, right? Something like that. We love Coach Dazer. Any other questions? Yes. Okay. Second thing. Yeah. What do you want to just sign for the poster? I say we love Coach Dazer. And like draw, uh, I got some like I got some park we can fill in. It's blue and white. We can fill in uh, something with it. Sounds amazing. Any other questions? Nope. All right. Well, you go enjoy your snack. Okay. Thanks for joining us today. Say goodbye to the listeners. Bye. And also, I got a new soccer ball from our donation. <laughs> Say cutie cutie. Cutie cutie. <laughs> Did you yeah. hear me? Yeah. All right, Paula Bennett, checking out. Thanks, baby. And I'm checking back in. And before we get to Jonathan Vilma and Rich Podolsky and the book club update and the Braves, uh, which I'm going to talk about in one last thing. Uh, First, we got to talk about two important things, the Sabres and Jack Eichel and the Saints and the quarterback situation there. So let's start with the Sabres. Uh, The long nightmare is over. Uh, Jack Eichel has been traded. And... When it comes to Sabres fans, there wasn't many who supported Jack Eichel as much as I did. Uh, I really loved Jack Eichel, and I really rooted for Jack Eichel, and I defended Jack Eichel, and I feel like in the end he let us down. He let me down. He quit on the city. He quit on the team. Uh, I know they had a disagreement over his surgery, um, but I think they could have worked through that if he was really serious about wanting to be a Buffalo Saber going forward. He said something on Spitting Chicklets like, oh, he had told them that he would play for us uh, if they allowed the surgery. But he also said that only so that teams could see that he was good and that we could ultimately trade him. You know, he wasn't willing to make a commitment to being here, despite the fact that the city had made a commitment to him and the team had made a commitment to him, you know, a multi-million dollar commitment, a $90 million commitment. And ultimately, he was a failure. Uh, His behavior was horrible around town. Um, There's many reports of the way he treated people, looked down at people. Uh, There's reports of his behavior uh, in terms of narcotics being out of control in the city. I don't know about that. I'm just telling you right now it's everywhere, though. Um, I can't confirm or deny that. But ultimately, we sold our souls and gave up a season to get this guy. And he didn't play a single playoff game here. He really didn't play a single meaningful game. He didn't play one game that mattered as a Sabre. Uh, he was an absolute bust. And uh, the return for him is okay. Uh, it's it's not the best return. Uh, but the problem with a trade like this is that you can't win it. 
When you trade Jack Conkley, you can't win the trade because trades are won uh, by the team who acquires the best player. And Jack Eichel is one of the 10 best players in the world. And uh, in a few months after his surgery is successful, uh, he'll go back to being that. Uh, but the Sabres got Peyton Krebs and Alex Tuck, who very much wants to be here, dreamed of being here. Uh, and they got a first-round pick, which gives them three next year. And they got a second-round pick in 2023 in exchange for our third. Uh, so good draft capital. Overall, it's three number-one picks. And a number two pick in exchange for Eichel and a third pick. It's a fine haul. Uh, the best thing about it, though, is that it's over. That the team can move on. The city can move on. Jack Eichel can move on. Uh, he's dead to me. Uh, I will root for him as a member of USA Hockey. Uh, although it doesn't seem like because of this stunty poll, that will be part of the Olympics. Seems like he won't be ready for that. God willing, he will. Uh, but it doesn't seem likely. Uh, so you know what? I I can't wait to go boo his ass, really, is what it comes down to. I'm glad he's gone. Um, and I don't I don't want to think about him anymore. You know, he's someone else's problem now. Uh, and we'll see if he can put it all together in Las Vegas, because if he can, uh, he can be one of the best players in the world. So that's that. Goodbye, Jack Eichel. As for the Sabres, uh, you know, I'm just going to get on board with what they're building here and try to believe in it. You know, I'm not going to go down there and spend money. I've said that until they make the playoffs. Uh, when they do make the playoffs, I'll come back in terms of being a paying customer. You know, I still watch the games now and again. If I catch them, it's not appointment TV for me anymore. Uh, but of course, I'm following along with the team and I like what they're building. And I like Casey Middlestat and Dylan Cozens and Owen Power and Jack Quinn and the German kid, and Erasmus Dahlin, and Peyton Krebs, and uh, Alex Took, and anyone else who's going to be part of this new core. Uh, and a good night to the Erasmus Dahlin and Jack Eichel, Sam Reinhart core. Uh, that core was a failure. It's dead. It's over. And we move on to the Dahlin, Power, Cozens, I don't know why I always call him Cousins because it's Cousins and it'd be a lot easier to just say Cousins. But for whatever reason, to me, he's Cousins. Uh, maybe he's going to have to earn Cousins. Uh, and Quinn uh, and Krebs and uh, the new wave of Sabres. So we'll look forward to that. Uh, as for the Saints, uh, so a fantastic win, first of all, against Tampa Bay. Uh, anytime you beat the defending Super Bowl champions, it's a great day. Anytime you beat Tom Brady, it's a great day. Uh, and that's three regular season victories in a row. Of course, he got the playoff win thanks to Jared Cook's fumble. Uh, but Jameis Winston went down, and potentially the Jameis Winston era in New Orleans is over before it begins. I'm not sure if he comes back, maybe. Uh, but certainly this season for him is over with the torn ACL on a scummy a horse collar tackle. Uh, which was flagged. And it's too bad for him. He's a good kid who worked very hard, said all the right things, listened to Drew Brees, but ultimately maybe a player that just doesn't fit into the system. You know, he struggled with the short and the medium routes and setting up the receivers to run after the catch. And that's the heartbeat of Sean Payton's offense. And he did his best to build around Jameis in the sense that 
we did take a lot of shots down the field and some of them were hitting, right? Harris, I think, had the longest touchdown reception in the last, like, 15 years of the Saints or whatever, you know? And there's a couple other long ones that hit this year. Um, and there would have been more uh, that would have hit if he would have stayed. Uh, and I wish Jameis the best. I have no hard feelings. So what now? Well, Taysom Hill just lost out to him. So you'd think, well, they'll just plug Taysom Hill in. No, not so fast. Trevor Simeon is going to start. And I think he could be a better fit. Here's the thing about Jameis. And I'm sorry he lost. He, he got hurt. I'm sorry he's gone. But I think his play was very average. I think it was very replaceable. And I think it's replaceable with the guys that are on the team. You know, there were many years where Drew Brees played an unreplaceable level of quarterback. Jameis Winston wasn't playing that level. He was playing very replaceable. And potentially, the players there that can replace him will fill the role better. Um, so I look forward to uh, Trevor Simeon getting the first shot with Taysom Hill playing some quarterback and doing all the other things that Taysom Hill does well. And I think it gives Sean Payton a chance to be really creative and not only using Hill as a tight end and a fullback, but as a quarterback and him and Simeon really keeping the defensive defenses off balance. Uh, so let's see how it goes. I'm excited about the Saints. I think the team is really good. They're 5-2. and two. I still think they're going to regret giving that game away against the Giants. I know that they're probably not going to finish first. So in the current system, you know, it's first and everyone else. And I think they'll be one of the everyone else's. Uh, so let's go, you know, um, let's see what they can do. I think they're a playoff team and I think they're a team that can come together uh, as the season goes on and make a serious run uh, in the playoffs. Of course, if they do that, it's going to be without Mike Thomas. And I got to be honest with everyone. I am done, done, done with Mike Thomas. And the honest truth is I think Mike Thomas is done with football. At least for right now. You know, he's not admitting it, but Mike Thomas doesn't want to play football. You know, he got an ankle injury, which, by the way, people want to blame this injury on Sean Payton being greedy because Mike Thomas was blocking on a run play up 11 with three minutes left in a game against Tom Brady. Listen, you don't take your starters out of a game up 11 week one against Tom Brady. You don't do that. Come on now. It's an unfortunate play. He got injured. And unfortunately, he throws Drew Brees under the bus and punches teammates under the bus at a much quicker rate than he does recovering from ankle injuries. Right? He was so close to coming back, but then he had to punch C.J. Gardner-Johnson in the face and miss a week. And then he had other injuries. And then he missed more time. And then he came back. But he was largely ineffective and more of a decoy, if anything. And then he was supposed to have surgery, but he blew off the surgeon and blew off the Saints phone calls and pushed the surgery off all the way until July. And then, of course, he was going to be out, but maybe he'll be back like in October and everyone on Saints will just keep him off PUP. Maybe he can get in the fifth game. Nope, he goes on PUP. Okay, he'll be back for the seventh game. Nope. He won't be back at all because he doesn't want to be back. And I don't want him back anyway. He's the biggest waste of money in the history of the Saints franchise. Good riddance.
It's like Jack Eichel. It's another addition by subtraction. The best thing about his note saying he's out for the season is that he's out for the season. He's not going to be back. So let's move on from Mike Thomas. Not just this year, but in the future. He's someone else that can be someone else's problem. I'm done with him. Done with him. All right. One guy I'm not done with is Jonathan Vilma. He's one of the 53 members of the 2009-2010 Super Bowl 44 champion New Orleans Saints, and he's the first one of those 53 guys to be on this podcast. And it was a thrill for me, and I can't wait for you to hear this interview. So we're going to take a break. We're going to have Jonathan Vilma. Then we'll take another break. And after that break, we'll do the book club update. Then we'll take a break. We'll come back with Rich Podolsky. And then we'll take one final break. We'll do one last thing, which will be on the Braves winning the World Series and me waking Paul up to watch it with me. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back. Our first guest today is from Coral Gables, Florida, and he is a graduate of the University of Miami, a first-round pick in the NFL draft. He started his career with the New York Jets before being traded to the New Orleans Saints, where he was a member of the Super Bowl 44 winning team. He currently is a broadcaster for Fox Sports, and he's making his debut on the Sportscasters today. A warm Sportscasters welcome. To the great Jonathan Vilma. Jonathan Vilma, welcome to the Sportscasters. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Steve. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing very good. Very excited to have you today. Um, huge thanks to my good friend, Kenny Albert, for helping out with this. And to Megan as well, Fox Sports. Uh, but I'm just really, really excited to have you. So I really, really want to talk about Jonathan Vilma, the player, and your time with the Saints and all that. But we'll do that kind of last. So real, qu- a couple quick things I want to kind of get off get off first so the first thing i want to just talk about uh the sports casting part of your life and uh i guess just to start to ask like i know as as a player for sure um because i was i was a hockey player uh growing up and 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 i know that we athletes do this you're always self-evaluating you know how do you how do you think you're doing as a broadcaster like how do you think your your work in the booth has improved from year one to year two how do you think it's going? Where do you think you're at? How does Jonathan? What does Jonathan Vilma think about Jonathan Vilma, the broadcaster? You know, from year one to year two, I would say freshman Jonathan was getting his feet wet, uh, and it was akin to when I was a rookie in the league and a freshman at University of Miami, where you're just trying not to mess up. And you got the playbook, the coach tells you what to do, you got the plays, and you're like, all right, let me, and there's a whole team around you, but it's like, let me just focus on me and not mess up the plays, right? Sure. So yep. that was my my first year broadcasting where it was like, okay, let me not mess up on the replay. Let me call every guy's name correctly. Let me make sure that when it's time for me to shut up, I shut up, you know, right. All all the little things. And then, you know, as long as I'm not messing it up, you know, I I should be okay. And, you know, I think the, the biggest 
uh, growth or jump from last year to this year is again going back to the you know football uh, parallels. Now uh, everything is starting to slow down. You know the the game yeah. it was always fast, but you know it starts to slow down now. Um, I'm able to have a little more fun while I'm while I'm broadcasting. You know I have a good rapport with Kenny Albert. Love working with Kenny Albert. It's it's like a, a great yin and yang that we have because he's so straight laced. Uh, Love the sport, yeah. uh, and then yeah, and I'm I'm a little more laid back, and I like to joke and have fun. So I think this second time around, my sophomore year, so to speak, uh, it's a lot more loose, uh, a lot more fun. Still able to talk football, talk the game. But it's more than just, all right, let me not mess up. It's about, okay, how, how do I make this entertaining and educational for the viewers? It's interesting that you mentioned Kenny because he's a guy who, it, just in his time at, at Fox Sports and football, has had so many different partners, you know what I mean, in his time there. And I think he's kind of worked with everyone, ex-players, ex-coaches, ex-media guys, and he's done all the sports. I mean, he's play-by-play number one in the U.S. for hockey, you know, at TNT this year. Last year, he's doing the Stanley Cup Finals on NBC. You know, he does basketball for the Knicks. He does baseball. Remember the Batista bat flip game? I mean, that's Kenny on the call there. What do you you think? Do you think it's been a break, maybe in keeping the football analogies up? Is it kind of like just being lucky and getting the best coach you're ever going to have on your first team? You know what I mean? Like, what do you think about Kenny? Um, do you look at it that way and think, wow, I caught a break with this guy? Because he's kind of seen it all and done it all, and that's probably helped the team gel because he just kind of has – you might be a zero on experience, but he was at 100, and it kind of made the whole team a little bit better right away, if, if, you, if you get where I'm going. I definitely get where you're going, and the short answer to your question is yes. Yeah. I do feel like – I definitely uh, got lucky in that regard. Um, I look at it from a little bit of a different perspective because it's a lot about our uh, personalities and our rapport and, uh, you know, the body language and how we you know, interact with each other off camera, uh, you know, the week leading up to a Sunday. And <clears throat> because he has such a, a good personality um, such a just open, nice, friendly guy. You know, that's really what made it uh, a lot easier for me to transition because Kenny was very open and willing to help me out um, to make sure that I was very comfortable. And in turn, that made for a good broadcast or a good game that we call. So, you know, I appreciate those things because I'm, I'm sure, and I haven't heard any stories, but I'm sure there's some play-by-play guys out there that you know aren't so nice or aren't so friendly or they want the attention on them right uh, I, I can only imagine you know the other side to it so yeah I've been very fortunate in that regard let me ask you this because it's interesting for you with your first year being the COVID year you know and it's almost like you walked into that freshman season and the the, the team's on probation or something you know, with the restrictions and the rules and all the extra protocols. And now this year, a lot of that has either been relaxed or very relaxed or taken away altogether. Do you feel like that's helped you kind of take an extra step this year 
that now that some of that stuff is is relaxed, you can on Friday night maybe go out to a dinner with Kenny and get to know him a little bit better or whatever the case is. But it, you know, it's an interesting to think that you kind of you jumped into this in that one year that would be the most difficult, and that maybe seems like a disadvantage. But I'm wondering if maybe it was an advantage because you've seen the hardest maybe now and as you get better and and it, and it gets uh it gets going here it's it's getting easier in a way is that true or not true in some ways yes it's true in other ways it's not because it's in some ways i'm still like a freshman right so freshman year twice you know, a great example yeah. is you know, a great example would be you know we weren't able to go on the sidelines at all pregame last year and then you know first game we have the colts versus Seahawks <clears throat> and I go to the booth I'm getting ready like I did last year and then Kenny's like hey you ready to go down and I was like go down where <laughs> He's like to the sideline you know and I was like uh we're allowed to do that yeah we're allowed to. I've been you know doing it for 28 years and uh, we get down there and I'm telling Kenny I was like you know this is literally the first time I'm doing it. he's like oh that's right COVID I said yeah so going down to the sideline going out to dinner talking to the guys in person, all of this is now new. And, you know, granted, these are little nuances. It's not like anything major, but it's just an adjustment that I have to, you know, kind of adjust on the fly. So, though, and then to be honest, in some ways, those things are more important than the actual studying of the film during the week because that allows me to really see the player, um, really bond with Kenny. And so, you know, the COVID was good in some regards where I could just focus on my assignment without all the extracurricular stuff. And then now it's incorporating all the extracurricular as well as knowing my assignment. That's really that's really interesting. You know, I wonder for you, it hasn't been that long since you played, but it's been long enough. What 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 has changed about the game the most, you think? Is there something you look out there and you say, man, I wish it would have been like that when I played. Or is there something out there, maybe the opposite, you say, man, I'm glad it wasn't like that when I played. Like, how has the game changed or say the same from when you played it? Yeah, that's a good question. The game uh, continues to evolve. I'd say the biggest difference right now is guys are, players are showing how athletic they are as opposed to how tough they are. And when I played, you had athletic guys, um, but you had some athletic guys that would try to run you over, right? Or uh, an athletic safety would try to knock your head off as opposed to get the interception. So because of the rules, they changed and for the better protecting against concussions, et cetera. You're now seeing these same guys that are big, fast, strong, yet they're showing how, again, they can go and get, an interception as opposed to the knockout hit or they can run around you as opposed to trying, trying to run through you. Mm. Uh, so I'd say that's probably the biggest difference and has a lot to do with the rules of the game. Um, I'd also say the mobile quarterback is uh, a big difference as well. You know, it was you know, frankly frowned upon back then, right? You had these athletic quarterbacks in college and immediately they were, uh, questioned about their throwing ability or they should just switch to a different position and, uh, you know, et cetera. And now you have these guys that are, you know, revered and Lamar Jackson, the way that he's 
revolutionized the game. And so that's probably the way to defend that. That's probably a big difference from when I played as well. I remember the day that you were traded to the Saints very, very vividly. I remember seeing the news and thinking like, wow, that that's all we had to give up for Jonathan Vilma? And then getting the texts <laughs> from friends and stuff and like right away, you know how it is, like, oh, congrats on Vilma, congrats on Vilma. And, you know, I'm sitting in my in my room right now and like next to me I have a fat hat on the wall and I, I got Shane um, – uh, Scott Shanley here, Tracy Porter running down with his finger stretched out, the late, great Will Smith, a uh, beautiful accent shot of the pick six from the Super Bowl. But the thing that made me so excited about that day and finding out about you being on the team is you were the first linebacker the Saints had of quality since the Dome Patrol. You know what I mean? Like we had that great group of linebackers, you know, Vaughn Johnson, uh, Sam Mills, uh, Pat Sully, Ricky Jackson. And it almost seemed like the football gods were like, all right, that's it for a while. You know, like you were too spoiled. And we that was just always the weakness. Never anyone in the middle of the field. Nobody could ever cover a tight end. Never any impact in that position. And that's why I was just so excited to get you. And I knew that there was some, maybe some questions about your health in, in New York or some injuries, whatever. And I was just thinking like, man, I just know this is going to be, you know, the difference for this team. And within two years, we were playing in the Super Bowl. Were you as excited as I were when you found out you were going to be a Saint? What was it like for you to get traded? What were your thoughts when you when you got the news at that point? You know, I was definitely excited. And my excitement came from, you know, a couple of years of frustration, frankly, right. when a man Gene becomes the head coach and the system that we were running, it wasn't necessarily the three four, you know, to make it real basic. It was more that it was the three, four that the Patriots ran. And we were like, when I say we, my, my fellow defenders at the time, we were like, look, we were a top 10 defense when you came. Now, granted, our record wasn't good, but we still played good defense and were clearly suited as far as talent and our, and our strengths and our abilities for if it's not going to be a straight up four, three, than a more aggressive, you know, slashing, moving around, blitzing 3-4. And so we weren't doing either one of those. And that was the most frustrating part because you want to win as a competitor and we're playing defense, we're getting beat. Obviously, everyone's telling us we're getting beat. Right. And we're, there's nothing we can do to stop that, right? There's, there's no more of a frustrating uh, scenario for a player that is put out of position is losing because they're out of position and there no one will let them correct that. Right. Uh, uh, the coach won't let you yeah. GM president, etc. So <clears throat> when, when I got traded, you know, I was frankly excited. I was like, you know, Sean Payton said, look, we're going to run a four, three. We're going to we want you in the middle. We loved your tape on college, your first two years with the jets. Like we know how to use you. Great. So that, that was exciting. And then, you know, the other excitement was having Drew Brees. I played against him when he was with the Chargers. And Drew Brees, when we scouted, we we're like, this guy's phenomenal, right? And we we had some good battles 
my first two years with the Jets against Drew, and I was excited to go uh, or go with him now as opposed to playing against him. So, you know, there was uh, a lot of excitement for me on that side, a uh, fresh start, uh, going back to a 4-3, playing with Drew. Uh, you know, everything just kind of lined up, to be quite honest. Let's talk about 2009 a little bit because it's my favorite thing in the world to talk about, really. Um, it was such a, a magical year, and, there, and there's kind of all these markers when I look back at the season that I think of because, you know, it's like that first Giants game. The Giants game, when they came to the Dome, was kind of a huge statement, both being undefeated and we kind of just blew, blew them out, it felt like. A really great day that day. You know, there's the Patriots game where Tom Brady just taps out. You know, him and there's that famous photo of him and Belichick standing on the sidelines with those, like, looks on their face or whatever. Amazing game. And there's one that I think of that a Jonathan Vilma moment from that season that sticks out is I think it was the second Falcons game that we won. Yeah, well, the first one was the Monday night with Jabari Greer pick six, I think, was the first. So the second Falcons game. You won that game two times for us in the fourth quarter, making unbelievable plays. Tell me about that game in 2009. Is that is that the game that sticks out as your best game as a, as a Saint, or at least in 2009, or is it another one? But I just think about the fourth down tackle, I think an interception in there. I just remember thinking like, man, Jonathan, I remember celebrating like, yeah, Vilma won us the game. Then somehow we screwed it up, gave the ball back to them, and celebrating it like five minutes later, like, Evelyn will want us to game for sure this time. Like, just an unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable game. <laughs> so what about that one, if, if you remember it? As good as I do, maybe not. But, so, yeah. you know, that I would say that was probably because the fourth quarter is the most impactful. Okay. Uh, so that, I, I would definitely say that. But I, I, mentally I had because – Greg Williams, defensive coordinator, he was, you know, very big on putting a lot of responsibility mentally on me during games. So getting in and out of uh, defenses, checking the defensive front into stunts, checking them out of stunts, uh, or just checking the whole defense, period. So uh, there were a lot of times where, or a lot of games where I had a better game mentally by getting us into the right defense, getting us out of a defense, sure. et cetera, that, you know, you just don't, the fan wouldn't see, right? All the, the fan just sees the play stuff, happen. Really. Yeah, pre-step. Right. Yeah. But well, with that being said, yes, that was definitely the most impactful. And it was just fun. I, I, I remember the games, we were first blowing opponents out. And right. then when the game started getting a little closer, a little closer, a little right. tighter. Like Washington. And, you know, Right. And yeah. I remember Sean, you know, really telling us, look, it's expected. You can't expect to blow everyone out. You people have now noticed you guys. They recognize you. They, you you have now caught everyone's attention. So whether you want to uh, believe it or not, you're going to get everyone's A game. Like everyone's going to get up to play against the Saints for the rest of the season. So I remember Atlanta had a backup quarterback. Matt Ryan wasn't in. And it still didn't matter. They were going to play as hard as they could possibly play. It was their game. Was uh, they they were, year, I think, yeah, yeah it was, they were like a game in or out of the playoffs. And, you know, they, they, I know they missed the playoffs at the time, but they were, you know, somewhere on the cusp of a wild yeah. card. So, yep. you know, we, we knew that, and it's a divisional game. We knew that they were going to come and play hard. That was expected. So, you know, from an impact, yes, definitely. 
Uh, the game, though, wasn't really concerned or or worried throughout the game. It was what, what I said, a divisional opponent who mm-hmm. we know is going to play as tough. They were fighting for their playoff lives at the time. Uh, so, you know, it ended up being just a, a really good, you know, heavyweight boxing match grinded out for three hours. Yeah, I mean, I, I just am thinking of so many games from that season, like the crazy game in Miami where we fall way behind and then end up winning by double digits. You know, the, the Drew dunking the ball yeah. on the fourth down. Listen, that, that game, yeah. the, what really happened was the first half, if you remember, it was a 4 o'clock game. Yep. And I just remember it was just hot as hell. That <laughs> first half, it was just hot as hell. Like, I, don't, I don't care what anyone tells me. We were over there, we're sitting, and I'm from Miami, and, yep. you know, we're like, man, it's just hot. Jesus. And so uh, I remember halftime, you know, we, we obviously fought back and yep. we're playing, but I remember halftime, we come back out, you know, the shade's starting to come in now. It's not so hot. We got a little momentum. We're like, all right, let's go do this. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> That's really what happened. You know, yeah, what, you know, it was, know what's it was hot, man. Wild about that defense is we gave up yards and I'm sorry. I'm, it's, hopefully it's okay. I said we, but uh, gave up a lot of yards, but you guys, scored so many points turned the ball over so much i mean it, that defense just sticks out for how many touchdowns they had you know and obviously that you know the biggest touchdown of the year is tracy porter's in the super bowl but i mean it started right away in the philadelphia game i think sharper had the long touchdown um in the jets game at home we had a defensive touchdown to kind of seal the game in the end zone the nose tackle whose name yep. for whatever reason i can't think of right this second hargrove right was it Hargrove? Anthony Hargrove? I don't know. Anthony Hargrove, yep. yeah. Yep. Then um, uh, we scored in the Miami game on defense. You know, uh, probably a couple others I'm not thinking of. But that team just turned it over. We'd give up the yards. But, man, the turnovers and uh, and even at points in that season, like that New England game, no Tracy Porter that night, right? Um, Mike was just kind of brought in off the street almost. You know, it seemed like that, right. that defense just was always so resilient in terms of, Hey, you might get us right now. You might get us on this drive. You might get 60 yards, but we're going to sack fumble at some point. We're going to turn you over at some point. We're going to score. Was that kind of the mentality of that group? Yeah, going into the season, Coach Payton and Greg Williams did a great job of emphasizing turnovers being the biggest indicator of whether a team will win or lose a game. Right. Uh, And so – we and I'm talking this was like at least once every four days we were getting a speech presentation PowerPoint on taking the ball away and protecting the football. So we I, I don't say we weren't worried about the yards. We were more focused on getting the ball out. And so what would happen in a lot of the games is that we would have these big leads. And because we would have these big leads now everyone is playing basically two minute offense against us. Right. All or, game. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and or like half the game. Yeah. And so everyone's like, oh man, you guys are giving up yards. And it's like, yeah, we're up by thirty points. Obviously, we're gonna just stay in cover two. We're trying to bleed this clock. So yeah. who cares if they get some yards? Who cares if they're, you know, going in between the ten uh the ten their ten to our ten for the next 30 minutes of this game, we're trying to get this game over with, right? So we understood that the the yards was skewed for the way we were playing 
our, our brand of defense. And the most important was getting those turnovers, getting the interceptions, the fumbles, the touchdowns. That's what we cared about. So we did that. We were like, fine, all right, now we're up 20. Have fun going between the 10s for the next 30 minutes of this game. (laughs) We don't care. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to make that one play, by the way, that is going to be the one we talk about all week anyway. All right, let me set this up, Jonathan, all right? And and then I'm going to say, all right, you go from here because I got to get – I got to get your, you got to give it to me. So, okay. So we score the touchdown, right? Um, Shockey's touchdown, I think. And then we get the two-point conversion, the long review. I remember thinking, all right, the worst they can do is tie us. Great position to be in. They start driving. I think it was Hargrove again gets injured. So there's a TV timeout, which is good. A little bit of a break. Come back. It's third and five. Um, and as Phil Sims, I think, says in the thing, they run, they ran their favorite play. Um, so Manning's in the shotgun. It's about three minutes left in the game. Uh, you guys are up by seven. Like I said, we had just had a commercial break because of an injury. I, I'm pretty sure it was Hargrove who got hurt on the play. Um, tell me, tell me, take me through the play from Jonathan Vilma's point of view. Tell me what happened pre-snap, what happened after the snap. What you seen, where you were with Tracy Porter's right now. Just give me everything about it because I, I can't get enough of it. So that play, we were in what's called automatic front and coverage. It's called AFC. So Greg Williams, we've been literally been calling it all game. So Greg Williams, going back to the mental part of the game, he would tell me AFC, and then there were three calls built into the defense that based on what I saw or what I heard from Peyton or however they lined up, I would have to then check our defense into or out of a play. Sure. So we have AFC called. We start with a base defense. Then I see them line up and I remember seeing this def- the this offensive play before. So I was like, okay, um, now let me hear his checks. Him as in Peyton Manning. Right. I'm listening to his checks because there were some checks that were dummy checks. There were others that were real. Well, the ones that were real, he would call them at a certain time with the play clock going down. So I had to wait, I had to wait, I had to wait. Finally, the play clock goes down. He makes a check. And then that's when I check into the defense that you, Tracy Porter gets the interception on that that you saw. And so that defense was really, I checked into a blitz because Knowing Peyton, having watched film that year, he liked to throw hot to the blitz side. Right. So what we did was instead of having that corner be soft, we would always squat the corner, which basically means jump any route, and we would put a safety over the top of him. So I hear Peyton's check. There's 11 seconds, 10 seconds on on the play clock. I check into our defense. I check into our defense. It's a blitz. Peyton recognizes it, but he can't get out of his call because there's not enough time. Play call. Play so clock's too down. Re- yeah. It's down too far. Yeah. So he sees it, recognizes it. He snaps the ball, and then he naturally, like I thought he would do, he throws it to the blitzer side, to the blitzing side. And that's where Tracy Porter, he was squatting on the route. He was just waiting for Reggie Wayne to make a break. Peyton Manning, he has to throw it. 
and interception Tracy Porter. So, you know, I, I, and then obviously he scores a touchdown. I'm watching him score and I'm celebrating, but that's part of the mental aspect that I said, the fans will never know. Uh, and nor do I care if they know It's just that for me, it was more gratifying to have made the right call Hell yeah! as opposed to, you know, making a big tackle. I love it. It's a great time to make that call, too. And it's another thing they say on the broadcast, right? If you watch it back, Phil Simms kind of has to eat his words. He's like, I thought they shouldn't blitz. Well, they sent everybody is exactly what he says. can hear it in my head. And it's right. The ball comes out really quick. And I think Tracy Porter said that he, you know, recognized the play on film as well, kind of knew it was coming. So that's why he made the break. But, man, I, I just remember, I remember just thinking in my head, like, okay, we won the Super Bowl, you know, and, and I know there was a couple minutes left and Peyton Manning and all that, but just to me, it was a define. It was the moment where I knew in my heart that we had won it. Did you feel that way too? Did you feel like you had made a Super Definitely Bowl not. winning check? No, it, players can't think that way, right? <laughs> no chance. Yeah, yeah, I was like, as a matter of fact, I told my team on the sideline, I told the diva, like, hey. Old- it's never over with right. Peyton Manning. It's, so, yeah. like, tighten up. I know I, I didn't even celebrate. Matter of fact, I, I think I just put my hand up. I was excited Tracy scored. But as soon as I got to the sideline, I wasn't celebrating. I was like, get your minds right because we're going against Peyton Manning. Right. Not until that fourth down where Reggie Wayne kind of doesn't catch it for whatever. I'm surprised he didn't catch it. Still that's day, when it was finally that's over. When you when felt it, right? I knew our <laughs> offense was yeah. going to come and take a knee. That's when I knew it was over. That's when I started celebrating. <laughs> the sportscasts are here with uh, Jonathan Vilma. Running out of time, and I appreciate every second of it so much. Uh, Jonathan, you know there's the joke that the uh, that the Saints are like Columbus South. You know, that Ohio State develops so many of our players, especially in the secondary. But I always say, like, that's great, but it's the Jets developing linebackers for us that I really appreciate. Uh, and Jonathan Vilma and now Demario Davis. It's been a great little uh, system we got going there for us. So I always appreciate the Jets for that and appreciate you. You know, very last very last thing, and, and I'll get you out on this, is, you know, I have for years now been fighting with anyone who wants to try to say anything to me uh, about Bounty Gate and um, just fighting and fighting and fighting for us and how unfair that was, especially to you, uh, more than anyone. And I just really appreciate that you fought as well. And, you know, there's the thing I've always heard is that you were in the office with Roger Goodell and he, he looked at you and and you said to him, you know, you say we had a, a bounty for Warner and a bounty for Favre, but not for Manning. And how does that make any sense? Why wouldn't we, if we were doing this, why wouldn't we do it in the Super Bowl? Um, and, and he just never had an answer for that to you. You know, looking back now on all of that, like, do you feel in the end that, that you got the vindication that you you deserved? Do you feel like or do you feel like we're still kind of fighting that still, and, and it's just so unfair to to everyone on the team and the coaches and and to the fans as well? Like, where where do you stand on that with your feelings all these years later? So we definitely were vindicated. I think the only uh, area or group of fans that really even cared at the time were the Vikings fans, sure. right? And they were just, you know, frankly, just a little. You know, but that they lost in the yeah in the championship game, Um, because every time I saw or people saw me in person, 
and not just in New Orleans, obviously they were supporting me in New Orleans, but even when I was in Miami or if I go out of town somewhere in the off season, you know, everyone either said, Hey, we know that's BS. We, you play like you get paid to hit people. So the fact that there's a bounty makes no sense. Or they were like, look, man, love the way you play. And that was it. So, you know, I always felt that we were definitely, uh, the scape or the were they were trying to make us scapegoats. We fought through that. Uh, yes, we were vindicated because the only people that bring it up are Vikings fans. They are Falcons and fans. You can always tell, us. right? Yeah. If, if they bring it up, uh, that's usually my quick response. Hey, you're a Vikings fan, huh? Yeah. And then that's it, right? And so, uh, you know, that, that I don't worry about that. I don't think the players do. And I definitely don't think that anybody tries to taint our Super Bowl win with an asterisk or something like that saying, oh, it was Bounty Gate, uh, besides Vikings fans, of course. Right. And I do have that right, too, that they tried to claim that there was no Bounty for the Super Bowl, right? And I hear, I there heard, was no Bounty. Yeah. Well, I know there wasn't one at all. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, they did, that wasn't even an allegation. Right, so it's like they have this allegation that uh, we're running this crazy bounty program, but then it's like, oh, Peyton Manning in the Super Bowl, let's call it off now, right? I mean, it's just so abs- everything about it just so absurd. But I don't know. Uh, yeah, so I, to be honest, I don't even remember. Right. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't remember what all all the specific allegations uh, at this point. Um, so I I couldn't even tell you. Yeah, half it. All right, Jonathan Vilma is calling games on Fox Sports. Uh, check them out there. A huge thanks to Kenny and to Megan for helping me make this happen. And Jonathan, I, I just want to say this, you know, I was seven years old and I was watching a Saints and Vikings playoff game in the Dome. And the Saints, after hearing the story of the team from my dad, he said, you know, 67, they started and they've the fans wore bags and, you know, let's check it out. The first playoff game and they got up to this 10 nothing lead and the Dome is rocking and you know, Coach Jim Mora is this Italian guy who looks just like my grandfather. And I sat there for the next three hours and watched 44-10 Vikings. And with every score, my heart just became more black and gold, you know. And I just knew that that was my team. And it's so much my team that it's part of my identity. I think, you know, if you meet someone who knows me, they'll say like, yeah, he's a Saints fan and, and he and he loves Pearl Jam. And, you know, maybe hopefully now they'll even say like, oh, he's a good dad too or you know, because that's important to me. But part of my identity is just that, you know, I'm this Saints fan. And um, I just have to say to you because you're here and, you you know, I just have to thank you for making all my dreams as a sports fan come true. Because I remember that day being at my house, Super Bowl Sunday, and sitting on the couch as we're getting ready to kneel and looking around and all my friends and family were there in Buffalo, New York, and they all had Saints gear. On and they were all there with me that day to support me. And um, it was because of you that it, it happened. And, uh, man, I just can't thank you enough, really. And, Steve, it was uh, – you You are one of many Saints fans that we would play for, and we meant it when we said – we did it not just for us, but we did it for the city. We did it for the fans because what you just told me, I mean, it, it warms my heart, man. So I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I got so much more. So we got to do this again. We can talk about 2011 
and uh, talk about more of the great things that happened in 2009 because I got hours of that and we can find out how you do with Brad. So hopefully we can do it again. Uh, I know I kept you too long. I apologize about that. But thank you so much for this. And again, thank you for making all my dreams as a sports fan come true. I appreciate you so much. Anytime, Steve. Have a good one, my man. Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high Way up firm and high Out past the cornfields where the woods got heavy Well, that was fun. That was really fun. I want to thank Jonathan Vilma for being on the podcast. I also want to spend set special thank you to Kenny Albert and to Megan Engelhart at Fox for helping with that. All right, book club update. I want to keep it quick, short, but in a second, we'll be welcoming Rich Podolsky to the podcast in his book, You Are Looking Live, How the NFL Today Revolutionized Sports Broadcasting is going to be the topic of that interview. And Rich Podolsky was very kind and very gentlemanly and did a great one hour with me, uh, which he wanted me to edit. I'm not sure why I did not edit it. It is the whole hour of the great conversation we had uh, and the book you are looking live, how the NFL today revolutionized sports broadcasting is available now. Please get it. Great gift, probably for dad. Good gift for dad, maybe mom. The Big East Inside the most entertaining and influential conference in college basketball is up next. Uh, that book's by Dana O'Neill, and it's about the classic conference that is the Big East. Uh, and Dana will be on soon to talk about that one, which comes out uh, in about a week. Looking forward to that. And then also Tinderbox by James Andrew Miller uh, is currently an embargo. Uh, until it comes out later in the month. And then when it does, we'll get a copy of the book and then hopefully time with uh, James as well. So that's the book club, the Big East, Tinderbox, and the one up next, Rich Podolsky's book called You Are Looking Live. Let's get to him. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Rich Podolsky. Our next guest today uh, is a writer. He covered the Miami Dolphins. Uh, he worked for the NFL Today. Uh, he's written for the Philadelphia Daily News, the Palm Beach Post, TV Guide, ESPN. He's a big music fan, and he's written a hell of a book, and I can't wait for you to hear our conversation about it. Making his debut today, a warm sportscaster's welcome to Rich Podolsky. How you doing today, Rich? Great. Nice to talk to you, Steve. Same. How the NFL Today Revolutionized Sports Broadcasting, which is You Are Looking Live. I love this book. I'm a sports media nerd. I always tell this to people that I was the kind of guy that would get the USA Today on a Monday. And the first thing I do is read the uh, Rudy Martsky column. Um, 
you know, that was the big news to me in the paper, whatever was in that column. Uh, so I'm, I was made for a book like this, Rich, made for it. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we knew Rudy very well in my CBS days. Oh, I'm sure. And he and he's still in touch. Yeah, he's got. He, uh, he con he contacted me uh, when uh, he saw me on Twitter for this book. So uh, uh, old uh, friends never die; they just go on Twitter. <laughs> Well, he was certainly a legend and a pioneer of, you know, the sports media column, um, certainly an, an, as a national writer. Uh, and the the NFL Today was a show that was not only an innovator, you know, in the pioneer role, but it's interesting because this for this NFL season started, Andrew Marchand, who covers sports media for the uh, New York Post was on, and we were talking about pregame shows, and we were just kind of, the question was, does anyone care about them? You know, that's where they are today. Does anyone care? Does anyone watch them still? Are they important? You know, what could happen this year that could make one of them important? And it's an interesting juxtaposition to where they are now compared to when the NFL today started in the 70s and how important and revolutionary the show was explain to everyone why that is because i think people in the 21st century lose sight in the information era of how little information there was then and how important a show like this was and why uh when it started it became the success it did well steve um before uh the NFL today really came into its own as uh, uh, a, a dramatic groundbreaking show in 1975. Uh, they, they tried to go live with it for the first time in 74 uh, with little success. Uh, but before that, you know, what you, what, what uh, fans have to realize is before 1974, if you were an NFL fan, it was nearly impossible to get information on your team. Uh, and, and the reason for that was there were only three channels, basically ABC, NBC, and CBS, and maybe a few UHF channels if you lived in big cities. Uh, but there was no cable, no ESPN. Uh, ESPN was still four years away. No CNN, uh, round-the-clock news. Um, there wasn't even sports phone. Unless you had an, an AP, an Associated Press ticker, in your living room, you had no idea what was going on with your team. And, you know, radio and TV were usually at least a day behind on getting the news. And then uh, this guy named Bob Wessler came in to take over at CBS Sports. He was a young visionary executive. Uh, he, I think he was 38 years old when he came, in, uh, came to CBS Sports. And uh, he had a lot of equity built up with the network. Previous to that, he had run the special events unit at CBS News and, and Walter Cronkite. Uh, he, he did a lot of special, uh, big, huge news events with Cronkite that he produced. Uh, after that, he ran WBBM in Chicago. He was the general manager, and he took their news from number four to number one. And if you don't think that's a big deal, 
you ought to look at the profits there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then they gave him CBS Sports to run when uh, it was time to move somebody new into that position. Uh, Bill McPhail, who had been there for 17 years, quietly retired. Uh, and uh, they brought in Wessler. And Wessler not only wanted to go live with the pregame show, he, he saw how important a pregame show could be. Uh, he wanted to break barriers along the way. And uh, by breaking barriers, what he did was he brought it on the very first woman for a live sports show like this. And that was Phyllis George, who was not just any woman. She was a former Miss America. She wasn't a sports reporter. She wasn't really knowledgeable about football, but she was a football fan. And Wessler thought that uh, sports on TV uh, was becoming a male ghetto and that uh, it was wall-to-wall men. And he thought there was a place for a woman on this type of show, Uh, not just so she would attract other women, but because it would cause uh, create better chemistry and better chemistry creates more viewers so he brought on the first woman ever and you know phyllis george parted the red sea for women broadcasters after her and made her hiring made it possible for others to hire women before that they were scared to death to do that uh, and he also uh decided to bring on earth cross the first african-american uh on a show like this And uh, Irv was just terrific working with uh, the third co-host, who was Brent Musburger. Irv and Brent uh, created the the, uh, term studio chemistry. They worked so well together. And uh, Irv was doing the the strategy and the highlights. As a former player, speaking as a former player. As a former player, yeah, he was a great player with the Eagles and uh, the 49ers. And, uh, And he came back to the Eagles as an assistant coach at the end, uh, player coach. And uh, he was an incredible guy. I uh, grew up in Philadelphia, and I used to sell programs at Eagles games when I was 14 and 15 years old. Uh, the main reason I did that, not, not for the 5 or $10 I might earn, but because when you uh, turned in your money after selling your programs before the game started, you got to turn in your money inside the stadium. And after you squared up, with the, the the people uh, uh, there, you got your you got paid your five or ten bucks, and you could walk through the stadium. And I would walk to about the fifty yard line and go up the, to the top of the steps at Franklin Field and sit on the top step where an usher couldn't get to me easily and chase me. <laughs> and I got to watch Irv, Irv Cross, and he became one of my idols when I was fifteen years old, nineteen sixty one. The Eagles had won the championship in 60, and they were still pretty good in 61. And uh, that was a very exciting time for me, and I'm sure for Irv. Irv uh, was the seventh-round draft choice of the Eagles that year. But uh, he impressed the coaches so much that they made him a co-captain. And uh, uh, if you've got time, I'll tell you the story on how that happened. Oh, Uh, yeah, definitely. uh, Irv was... uh, uh, in a rookie uh, session, uh, in a rookie class session with the Eagle Eagle coaches, and they asked the rookies to write down what their assignment was uh, for their position. 
And uh, Irv was the last. And when you finished the assignment, you could leave the room. You handed in your paper and you could leave the room. Well, Irv was the last one finished. And when he got up and handed them the paper, they said, what, what was wrong? What took you so long? And they looked at the paper and Irv didn't just write down uh, the his responsibility for his position. He wrote down the Everyone's. responsibility for all 11 defensive players. Wow. And when they asked him how come he did that, he said, well, that's how we did it at Northwestern. Uh, so Irv was quite an unusual guy. They made him co-captain uh, that year. He did defensive signals when he was in the games. And uh, he was the hardest working guy you'd ever want to be around. Uh, he was one of 15 uh, kids in a family where his mother died giving childbirth to the 15th child. So his father was a widower and his father left for work every morning at 5.30 a.m. Uh, but Irv had to get up even before that. He had to get up at 5 a.m., especially in the wintertime, because that's where they, when they delivered the coal to his house in the morning. And Irv would shovel the coal down to the furnace, and so the house would be warm when everybody else woke up. That's how tough a kid Irv was. And that's one of the wild and, things uh, about the book, too, is you have the individual profiles of the different of the different members of the cast, and it's incredible the trials and tribulations that you don't think about. I mean, just Jimmy the Greek, for example, with his mother and his aunt being murdered and then having the children die of cystic fibrosis. And like you said, the challenge, you know, or Cross's mother passing away and the different things that Phyllis and Brent went through as well. It's an, un it, you know, it, it wasn't something I thought about when I opened the book that the characters of the show would have such unbelievable backstories. Yeah. The, the, uh, I really thought it was important to get to know who these people were, not just what you saw on the screen uh, or saw in clips if you were too young to, to be around in the 70s and 80s when this show uh, was uh, taking off. But, um, yeah, that that's uh, always important to me, and that's the way I like to, to write. I'm glad you enjoy that part of it, Steve. Um, so, so getting back to why the show was uh, yeah. so dramatically important in 1975, it gave the audience, we had three co-hosts. The third was Brent Musburger, who was virtually unknown at the time, except in Chicago, where he was the sports director on TV. And uh, uh, so Brent had his role. He was the main cog. Uh, he was uh, uh, the air traffic controller. You might say uh, he would hand off to Phyllis for, uh, personality profile. She interviewed people like Joe Namath and Roger Staubach that first year. And uh, he'd hand off to Irv for, for uh, those uh, uh, other uh, things like the highlights and the strategy. And then a year later, Jimmy the Greek joined the cast. Uh, and by Wessler adding Jimmy the Greek, he, he flew in the face of the NFL commissioner, Pete Rozelle, who was dead set against having any discussion of gambling or point spreads on the show. And, and Wessler uh, felt like he could take that chance because he knew it was going to add tremendous interest to the show and, and great uh, uh, ratings as well. And it, the ratings doubled when the Greek came on. They went, they, they were uh, fives and sixes uh, rating points in the first year when the show won an incredible 13 Emmys and they went to eights and nines 
for the Greek and for those people who don't know what rating points are, it's a percentage of homes that are actually watching that show. And that, that uh, totals into the millions. Uh, and those, those are the kind of rating points that primetime shows today get. So imagine if they're lucky. Uh, yeah, a, if they're lucky. A, a show at 1230 uh, in the afternoon getting that on a Sunday. Unbelievable uh, ratings. The, the yeah. show was making an enormous amount of money. And um, uh, these three people were exciting people to watch. You know, you were getting news and information and conviviality. And uh, it was fun. People were rushing home from church to see it. They were rearranging their church schedules. Uh, th- this was something you didn't get in the newspapers or on the radio. This was new stuff. And they opened the show every week with Brent uh, saying, you are looking live. And that came from, uh, actually, they opened the show uh, doing a, uh, what they call a whip around, showing uh, each uh, stadium for 10 seconds or so. Yeah, legendary. And, and, yeah. and in one early production meeting, Bob Fishman, the director, said, you know, uh, I uh, have these buddies who bet on the games, and they always want to know what the weather is. And uh, Brent, who was sitting in on the production meeting, said, uh, thought for a minute, and then he said, Let's show you know, uh, <laughs> when we show these stadiums in the beginning, I could say you were looking live at Soldier Field in Chicago. Or you were looking live at Vet Stadium in Philadelphia, and that caught on. And uh, that that was that was a tip off to the gamblers. Yeah, which so yeah, we'll get into know, that. This was the kind of this was the kind of stuff nobody ever had before, uh, and the show just took off. Now from there, I have been an out of market fan since 1987. I've been a New Orleans Saints fan since the '87 season, living in Buffalo. And it was very difficult, you know, until about 1996 when I could get, got my license and could drive to a sports bar every Sunday and finally watch all the games. I was going week to week. <laughs> I would sit down in front of the game, most of the time Saints aren't on, waiting for the 10-minute ticker every 10 minutes to find out how the game was, game was going. And it showed like the NFL today was so important to someone like me. Um, because it was very NFC centric, especially, you know, when I started watching it religiously in 87, 88, you know, that was the contract they had. And it was so important to me, uh, because they would tell the story of my game, even with, uh, the Berman show on ESPN, my game, they'd mm-hmm. show the helmets and Berman might talk about it for three minutes and then they're on to the other game that they're featuring or whatever. Um, so this show was very important to me and my fandom early on uh, because they were talking about the teams in my division, the conference. the It was just so important, and it's crazy to think about that now because, you know, now I like to sleep in on Sunday. I like to set my alarm for 12.55 and, uh, you know, roll out of bed and put the game on. And I don't even think because I've gotten bombarded with information all week. Uh, but back in the 80s and the 90s, the information on this show was so important. And they were very creative about, you mentioned how, you know, the commissioner was against gambling references. The commissioner of the NFL has been against gambling references until about six minutes ago. You know what I mean? Exactly. When, when all of a sudden they're not. That 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 Tony Romo just a couple of years ago 
had to get ripped out of a conference talking about fantasy football in Vegas, uh, you know, just a couple seasons ago, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and I think that gets lost in how much they're embracing it now. Um, but you already mentioned Jimmy the Greek, and he's the really the great character of the book and the show. And uh, and it's just so slick because he would, like you said, the creative ways, you know, they would think of, OK, it's a four point spread. And the score that he would predict is 19 to 15. You know, he would just predict these wonky scores because they were irrelevant. It was just about tipping off to the gambler that this is the margin he was counting on and what that meant in regards to the spread. Oh, for, for your listeners who uh, may have heard of Jimmy the Greek but don't know much about him, in 1976, when he joined the cast of the show, he was probably the most famous gambler in the world. Yeah, his winning, Jimmy the Greek, unbelievable. Some of the things in the Jimmy book. The, Jimmy the Greek uh, became famous in 1948 when he won a million dollars betting that Harry Truman would beat Thomas Dewey and become the president of the United States. Tell tell him how, uh, what his research was, what what made him think he could win, and what his sister told him or whatever about the well, mustaches. Yeah, 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 sure. I know. I'm getting to it. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry, you got me excited. All right, go ahead. Uh, the Greek uh, grew up in Steubenville, Ohio, and uh, that was, uh, and as you mentioned earlier, when he was, uh, nine or ten years old, he watched his mother and his aunt get murdered uh, uh, right in front of him on the street. Uh, so it was a tough childhood. And Steubenville was a town of 40,000 people, and it had something like 11 or 12 uh, uh, bookmaking and casino operations. And uh, by the time the Greek was 14, he was running the big wheel at one of them. He was so good at uh, math and, and understanding the gaming. And he was making more money than his father, that who owned uh, a deli. Uh, so the Greeks started uh, learning that getting inside information was a big part of um, making money uh, on his bets. And he started paying off the railroad porters in Steubenville to bring him the sports sections from around the country. And he'd give them 50 cents for each sports section he'd, he'd get. And he would find out what uh, Blackie Sherrod, the great columnist in Texas, was writing about the Southwest Conference, or Grantland Rice uh, was writing about uh, uh, Vanderbilt and the teams in the South, Southeast. Uh, and he had uh, information that nobody else had because there, there was nothing like that anywhere. Uh, there, on radio, there was no television then. And he started making a fortune because he had better numbers than the bookies on a lot of these teams. And um, in 1948, he's shaving one day and his sister, who happened to be uh, there, said, why are you growing a mustache? Uh, She said, don't you know that women hate mustaches because it reminds them of Adolf Hitler? And he thought for a second, and then he looked at the front page of the paper, and he saw Thomas Dewey's picture, and all he could see was Dewey's mustache. And he thought, oh, my God, it's a month before the election, and Dewey could lose. And then he went out and sent out three women to canvas in front of the A&P in Steubenville, and they interviewed 500 women, and he found out about 400 of them didn't like mustaches. (laughs) 
<laughs> and that was enough. Genius. That was enough, enough yeah. for him to go to New York. He went to Lindy's, the famous uh, restaurant that for the famous for their cheesecake. And that's where Damon Runyon and all the bookies hung out. And he bet made bets with three different bookies, getting 20 to one odds on on Harry Truman to win the election. And he bet a total of fifty thousand dollars between the three of them. And he got one over a million dollars. And uh, the he uh, the bet was guys getting anywhere from odds from 17 to 22 to one. And uh, I used to uh, go go out with uh, the Greek to dinners and stuff when I was at CBS Sports with him. And I'd ask him, why did you take the 17 to one odds? And he said, because I was guaranteed that that guy would pay off. Well, it turned out they all paid off. And a million dollars then was worth about uh, half a billion dollars today. So the, the Greek was loaded and he continued to want to gamble. And he went out to Vegas and opened up some of the best bookie shops in the country. And Sports Illustrated wrote a column about him in, in the 60s. And the headline of the column was the man who makes the odds. And he became more and more famous. He started a column uh, that got printed first in the Las Vegas Sun with his own numbers uh, for baseball and football and basketball. And that column got syndicated in 300 different papers. By the 70s, he had his own radio show. And then uh, he met uh, a guy who wound up being a guy named Mike Pearl, who wound up being the producer of the NFL today. And that's how he got brought onto the show. The Greek was already tremendously famous when he joined the NFL today. And and he was probably the most popular of the four of them, Brent, Phyllis, Irv, and uh, uh, the Greek. He was probably the most famous of the four of them when uh, he came to the show in 1976. And that's why the ratings jumped so much. And the ratings not only helped CBS, they helped the NFL. It helped. The popularity of the show helped the NFL uh, broaden its scope and um, overtake baseball as America's number one sport. Yeah, it's just a monster today on television. I mean, they have so many different TV packages now, and, and they almost don't need fans in the stands necessarily. You know, they were the league most equipped to handle that because the reality of the league is a TV show. and. It's amazing the talent that went through not only what you cover in the book, but also in the era after the book, you have guys like Mike Francesa, who kind of got his big start on this show. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Jim Nance worked on the show. Um, it's just an incredible depth of talent of people who came through the show. Yeah, Greg, Greg Gumble. Greg Gumble, yeah, you can Greg, go on. Greg yeah. Gumble. Greg Gumble tells some great stories in a chapter I have about him that. He he uh, first worked with Terry Bradshaw, and then he worked with uh, Kenny Stabler. And he said between Terry and Kenny, he learned how to drink. <laughs> amazing! It's it's amazing too, yeah. though. This book does have a little bit of rise and fall feel for the characters. Some of the characters, obviously, the the firing of not only Jimmy the Greek but also Brent got fired from the show too, which is crazy to think. Yeah, yeah, I go into that in detail, both both of those stories. Um, and, you know, this was quite an era. Which, uh, the show, uh, the cover of the book, the book is called You Are Looking Live, and the cover of the book is uh, 
the classic black and white photo of the four of them. It's the only photo of the four, four of them that exists. And it's really a piece of Americana. Uh, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a beautiful a, photo. A cultural, a cultural view of the seventies and the eighties. Um, so there's stories throughout uh, on all these guys, uh, where they were, how they got there. You know, Brent was a, a columnist for a paper called the Chicago American before he, he uh, got into radio. And uh, the way he got into radio is he uh, was asked, uh, he did some uh, freelance work for uh, the radio station in Chicago, the CBS WBBM station. And uh, they asked him if he was going to go to the, the Olympics in Mexico City in 68. They would like him to do reports. Well, he hadn't planned on going. And when he applied for uh, a credential, he found out it was too late. So he kind of snuck in the back door using somebody else's credential from Sport Magazine, who, a guy who wasn't going. And then uh, when uh, 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 Tom, uh, Tommy Smith and uh, John Carlos gave their back black power salute, uh, it was big news, and Brent cornered these guys in an uh, area that was unauthorized to the press over in the athletes' quarters. He recorded a 12-minute interview. That interview uh, went like wildfire across uh, the country, and when Brent came back, he was famous, and WBBM wanted him full-time, and they offered him more than double the $13,500 he was getting as a columnist with the Chicago American. And uh, he didn't want to leave the job. He loved being a columnist. So he went to a sports editor and he figured that if the guy would give him a nice big raise, he'd stay. And instead, the sports editor said to him, what are you, crazy? Nobody leaves a column, especially in Chicago. <laughs> well, Brent did for twenty-seven or 28000 a year. And it was the best decision he ever made. A year later, he was the sports director on WBBM-TV. And a year or two after that, he was doing stuff for the network, a sports spectacular and a few NFL games. And then in 74, uh, the year before all this happened with the NFL Today, Jack Whitaker was hosting the NFL Today. He was The show was too fast for him when they tried to go live. But one weekend, Whitaker was out of town uh, in Ireland doing the Irish Derby, and they asked Brent to come in and try it. Well, Brent was like a kid in a candy store. Natural. Everything yeah. was easy for him. It, and they saw what the future was with Brent doing it, that it was going to be uh, a very doable situation, especially when they tried to do halftime highlights, uh, which in 1975 they did for the first time. They had halftime highlights, Brent doing highlights from eight different games. They never had them on before. You never saw them if, that's in 1973 talent. or yeah, 1974. All you saw were the highlights of your own game, and maybe you got the scores of other games. That's what this show did. It was personality-driven, Steve. It was the beginning of what's known as sports, broadcast, sports personality broadcasting. And today it's, it's still the same. I mean, it was Phyllis and Irv and Jimmy and Brent. They were the personalities, and they became famous. They were practically unknowns, and they became famous. They became broadcasting icons. And today you've got 
you know, the, the big stars over at Fox with Terry and uh, Jimmy and uh, Howie and at CBS as well uh, with JB and uh, yeah, good talent. Uh, some of those other a lot guys. of the shows, like, yeah. Nate Burleson. Yeah, I mean, the, it's all based on personalities now, and it's back to wall to wall men. I had don't like. I have based a. I've done a podcast for ten years based around that term, essentially. You know that because yeah. I barely ever do athletes. Almost everyone on this show, when I'm talking about sports, we, I cover other things, but. When it's a sports show, it's always about someone who wrote a book like you or someone who works for ESPN or Fox or whatever. You know, I've built a whole show around that that premise. And, you know, the personalities in the sports media are sometimes just as strong, if not stronger, of the athletes that they're covering. You know, it's interesting because the the show kind of ends, at least the uh, the book sort of ends and the show kind of ends with the emergence of Fox and Fox kind of sw- coming in and, and, and stealing the um, – the rights out from under CBS to the uh, to the the NFC package, and CBS was out of the game for a little bit before they got the AFC package back a few years later. But that's kind of the kind of where the book kind of ends with that shocking, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> Rupert Murdoch's network that could coming out of nowhere and, yeah. and just kind of swiping the rights. Yeah, Rupert Murdoch uh, overpaid by at least a hundred billion dollars a year. CBS is big, but he, he had to do it uh, in order to uh, expand his network of affiliates. He, he was far behind the other networks, and uh, that that really made Fox uh, having the NFL. But there there was one area of this story that we, we really should touch on before we go, Steve. Sure. And that was the show became so popular, uh, and the ratings kept going up, and the salaries kept going up. And uh, as it, the popularity of everyone and everything increased, the tension on the show and the tension on the set increased because there was only 22 minutes of airtime and everybody was fighting for airtime. The four of them were all fighting to get their time on the air and get become even more famous. And it was usually the Greek who got cut out of the extra airtime when Brent had an extra 20 or 30 seconds to hand out to somebody. And the Greek got very upset with Brent uh, over a period of time. And uh, one particular Sunday in October of 1980, it came to a head when Brent and the Greek actually went out at fisticuffs in a bar called Pear Trees after work one day. Uh, And this is how it happened. The Greek had a segment on the show called The Greek's Grapevine, it was insider news the Greek was supposed to be bringing to the show. Well, Brent and the producers pretty much uh, got sick of uh, the Greek's tips from Al Davis. Uh, right, he would always thought pick all the Raiders, information right? was coming from his, his yeah. buddy Al Davis, the owner of the Raiders. Uh, but on this particular Sunday, he had a real legitimate piece of information in October of 1980, and that that information was that. Uh, Notre Dame was about to fire their coach, Dan Devine, and replace him with, of all things, a high school coach from Akron, Ohio, named Jerry Faust. Uh, Nobody else had it. Uh, It it was really a secret, and the Greek had it, and they rehearsed it before they went on the air. And when it was time for the Brent to throw it to the Greek and say, Greek, what do you got for us today? 
Instead, Brent blurted out the Greek's news and Ooh. left the Greek tongue-tied. He left him tongue-tied, and the Greek was upset and boiling over the rest of the day. And when they got to pear trees that night, the Greek continued to complain about it. And according to producer Ted Shaker, uh, at that point, uh, Brent said to the Greek <clears throat> something to the effect of, you know, Greek, I can make you disappear anytime I want. And at that point, the Greek hit him right in the face. <laughs> and and uh, it, it was a good punch. And uh, people had to separate them all. You know, everybody had had a couple of drinks by that time. Had to be separated. Uh, there were too many guys from the media in that bar at that time uh, for it not to get out. It was in the Washington Post the next day. It was in the front page of the New York papers. And... Uh, uh, by the following Sunday, everybody had kind of made up when they came on the air. I, I actually was the writer on that show that day. Um, when they came on the air, they had boxing gloves in front of uh, Brandon the Greek. And uh, Phyllis <laughs> rang a bell. They had Phyllis fun with rang it. A bell yep. and that was the genius. Said, uh, round one. And it was the highest rated show of the year. Yeah, that was the genius. They had fun with it. Did they ever consider doing it 12 to 1 instead of 12.30 to expand the time out a little bit? They didn't expand the time until uh, the 90s, I believe. Yeah. They never thought of it or considered it or talked about it? I, I don't think – I really don't think that they considered it because uh, 12 to 12.30 was uh, uh, time for the, the uh, local affiliates. And uh, the affiliates made a lot of money in that half hour. But once uh, game day on ESPN did it and uh, NBC uh, did it, then the then CBS had to go, yeah. to go there. They, Bef- had to, they had to be able to compete. The sports you know, ca- game day had nothing to lose. Game sure. day was smart in going there. Yeah, game day was a good show, yeah. too. Uh, the sports guests are here with Rich, Rich Podolsky. I'm sorry. You're looking live as the book, How the NFL Today Revolutionized Sports Broadcasting. You want to finish that thought? And then I got a couple more for you before I let you go. Sure. I, I was just going to say game day was a great show, but there wouldn't be any game day if there wasn't for the NFL today. Oh, no. This was the, the trailblazer for sure. Great shows like Inside the NFL. Another one probably wouldn't have existed without this one. Um, the whole yeah. genre, the genre in general. I mean, really a revolutionary thing, and the book is full of stories like the one you just told uh, that really bring to life the characters and the behind the scenes and front of the scenes, all that. Can you talk a little bit more about what you did on the show? I don't want to not, I don't want to br- gloss over that while I got you here, what it meant to be a writer for the show, exactly what you did for it. Uh, in uh, 1973, I started covering the Miami dolphins for the Palm beach post. Um, and uh, it was very exciting, and uh, it was fun for me. Uh, they had just gone seventeen and zero the year before, and they seventy three. They they uh, uh, went fifteen and two. Was probably even a better team. They won the Super Bowl again, and uh, I was there in uh, the following year or two as well. And I got to know uh, a few guys uh, down in Miami. Uh, Michael Pearl, uh, who was a the lead producer for WTVJ in Miami and a guy named Bino cook who uh, was at ABC sports for a long time as a publicity guy. He was very well known. 
And that year in uh, 74, he became uh, the public relations guy for the Dolphins. And uh, through knowing those two guys, uh, I was able to uh, eventually get a job uh, at CBS Sports in 1977 uh, to, to join them to, to come on as a writer and do uh, write uh, releases for the network and write the shows on the weekend. Pearl was the producer of uh, both CBS Sports Spectacular and uh, the NFL Today. And uh, being friends with him back in uh, the earlier years with the Dolphins was a good reason I, I was able to land that job. As the writer on the show, the, the, my main job was just to stay alert and look for information during the week and look for information on Sundays. And I had uh, not a whole lot that I had to write during the show or before the show. Uh, mo most of the show was not scripted. What was scripted were the lead-ins to the um, feature pieces they did. In those days, when they ran a piece of videotape, it, there was a seven-second lead-in. Uh, so uh, from the time right, yeah, the, talk over it. the director pushed yeah. the button until the time it came up on the screen, there was seven seconds, and I had to write seven seconds for Brent or for Irv or Phyllis uh, to lead into their feature piece. Uh, and I re remember one time for Sports Spectacular, I was trying, they were leading into a, uh, a volleyball interview with Will Chamberlain, of all people, who was a volleyball enthusiast. And the guy they had on uh, that week hosting was an ex-NBA player who will remain nameless um, uh, for a good reason you'll soon see. Right, yeah, I remember uh, this from because, the book. Yeah. Because um, he, what I wrote was, uh, and so-and-so had this in interesting conversation with Chamberlain. Well, the poor guy just couldn't say it. They tried to tape tape it, tape his intro five or six times, and he just couldn't say this interesting conversation with Chamberlain. So finally, Mike Pearl said, "We're just going to change it to spoke with Will." Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's a great story. You know, the beginning I, of the book, yeah. And uh, some of the other stuff I would write the the lead-ins for Brian in the beginning. Uh, uh, you were looking live at Soldier Field in Chicago where today Walter Payton and the Chicago Bears take on so-and-so, et cetera. You know, it was, it was kind of rudimentary stuff like that. And, and some of the times Brent would spice it up himself. He was a great writer on his own. He didn't need me to write it for him. But it was a, it was a great job. It was a lot of fun. And on Mondays, I got to go to the racetrack with Jimmy the Greek. Well, that was our day off. That's an interesting connection when you were talking about covering the Dolphins. Is there's a famous thing you talk about in the book about how Jimmy the Greek was bulletin board material for that team because he had predicted that yep. the that the Cowboys, I think, with Staubach were going to either win outright or cover. And the Dolphins took that personally. And uh yeah. they won the game. I did I just made that connection while you were talking that I had remembered there was a big Jimmy the Greek story in there about the seventy three Dolphins. Yeah, the Dolphins. I mean, there was there was a game in uh, in '73, uh, late in the season. The Dolphins had gone 17 and 0 the year before. Uh, they had gone like uh, th this season. I think it was uh, 11, 11 10, 10 out of they won 10 out of 11. The only game they lost was early in the season on the road to Oakland. They lost 12 to seven. 
George Blanda kicked four field goals to beat them. Um, and uh, so they had won like 20 out of their last 21 games. But when they went to Dallas for Thanksgiving Day, the bookies had them a two-point underdog, and they were pissed about it. And, you know, the headline, the headline in the paper was, you know, Jimmy the Greek's column, the Cowboys favored over Dolphins. And uh, they just dominated that game. Uh, and they they were winning 14 to nothing. And early in the fourth quarter, Cowboys finally got a touchdown to make it 14 to seven. It really wasn't that close. The Dolphins got the ball with nine minutes and 45 seconds and left in the out. game. Yeah. And the Cowboys never saw the ball again. <laughs> they ran uh, Larry Zonka and Jim Kick and Mercury Mars to death. They, they, they went on three fourth downs and made all of them. And they, when the game ended, they had the ball on the Cowboys one yard line. And when they got in the locker room after the game, some prominent player, uh, Hollard, F you, Jimmy the Greek. <laughs> Take that one, Jimmy. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it was interesting to me that it was, you know, the Greek was pretty much using uh, the bookies' lines in Vegas by then, and he was getting the blame. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's great. really how prominent he had become was the, the message in that story. Let me, um, so, let me ask you this one. Ahead. Yeah, I, I know he's not a big part of the book, but. I'm a huge Mike and the Mad Dog fan, um, and uh, I just want to know if there's any other stories about Francesa or anything you could say about his tie-in, because he was on the show for a couple years there, and uh, is there anything, he's he's only really on one page in the book, you talk a little bit about his involvement, but is there anything right, Fran- Francesa-wise? Mike Francesa uh, was the editor of College and Pro Football News Weekly. Right. And, and when I uh, left the business and w- I went to Wall Street, for 20 years, I uh, wrote a, a media and TV column uh, for College and Pro Football News Weekly. And for many of those years, Mike Francesa was my editor. So I got to know Mike pretty well. Um, and he came on the show. Uh, I was one of the people that recommended him. Uh, to go on that show as a uh, sort of a research uh, source and an information guy. He knew more about pro football, uh, he and a guy named Frank Ross, than anybody I know. And Frank Ross also worked for that paper and formerly worked for the Kansas City Chiefs. And uh, those two guys were were tremendous help for uh, the guys in the studio. And uh, that's, that's where Mike, first got his exposure to television and then when wfan radio started here as all sports radio in new york he was the lead guy you know he was sensational from right off the bat he used to hang out at a a restaurant called runyon's where a lot of the sports media uh went every night at least i did (laughs) uh and uh I mean, you could, you could, it was a writer's dream. You could, you could meet anybody from Dick Enberg to Al McGuire from the other networks to, yeah, I would bring John Madden in. Uh, Madden and I were buddies. We sit there and watch Monday Night Football. You actually uh, used together. to fly with Madden, right? You were one of the few that got to be on a plane with the yeah, guy. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
I uh, in the author's note in the beginning, I talk about flying yeah. to a show called The Superstars, uh, and they had a show at the end of the year called The Super Teams, and Madden was still flying then. Uh, they brought on the, the Raiders because the Raiders had won the Super Bowl. Madden and I, I sat next to each other in the front row, and uh, they had the Yan- Yankees and the Minnesota Vikings and the Cincinnati Reds and the Raiders all on the same plane. And halfway through the flight, crazy Ted Hendricks, they used to call him the Mad Stork on the Raiders. He walks up to me and he says, you know, Rich, if this plane ever went down, it would take your mother a month before she found out you were on it. <laughs> That's great. That's too good. Uh, the book, the book again. It's called "You Are Looking Live: How the NFL Today Revolutionized Sports Broadcasting." It's by Rich Podolsky, who you can find on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, he's there. Uh, you can you can learn more about the book, and he is at oh, click 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 at Rich Podolsky, just his name. Exactly. Easy one. At Rich Podolsky. Anything else you want to plug or mention? Anything else you want to fill in? Um. You know, I we didn't talk much about Phyllis. Phyllis, yeah. If you got a minute, sure. I, I just I just want to talk about Phyllis. Yeah, she just Ph- passed Phyllis away, George, right? Twenty twenty. She 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 passed away. When she passed away, uh, I started to reconnect with some of my old CBS colleagues, and it hit me how much uh, the show meant to me, and uh, the impact it had on so many people that loved loved the game, and that's why I sat down and started writing this book and getting back in touch with everybody. But, you know, I knew Phyllis fairly well. And um, Phyllis was just a great individual. She went through a lot when she was Miss America. Uh, she, she won, When she won in 1971, they sent her and six runners up to Vietnam to entertain the troops. And, uh, you know, I say in the book, you know, uh, what was second prize, you know, a year, year in jail or something like that. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was really a horrible assignment. You know, uh, it, it wasn't the entertaining of the troops, but Vietnam was just a terrible place to go. In those days, uh, everybody hated the war uh, at that point. And uh, uh, she was uh, besieged by the press. What did she think about uh us being in Vietnam. Then when she came back and toured in the U.S., the, the women's lib groups were against uh, the Miss America pageant and the Miss America uh, a winner, and they they uh, picketed her wherever she went, and she had to deal with them, and uh, she had to answer questions about who she thought was going to be president. You know, she got toughened up real fast in that year. She was only 25 years old when she started on uh, – on uh, the NFL today, but she was ready for it. And she, as tough as she was, that's how sweet she was and nice she was. Uh, And I tell a story uh, um, outside of the book, but I'll tell you guys, uh, earlier that first year in 1977, when I, my first year on the show, uh, my mother was a recent widow and she came uh, in on the train to New York to spend the day with me on Thanksgiving. and But we were in the studio because we had uh, the Lions and Green Bay game that day. And uh, so I had her meet me in the studio and she just sat quietly. She was just this little old lady sitting in the corner and knitting. 
And after uh, the, the pregame show was over, um, Phyllis, instead of going back to her dressing room, she went over and sat next to my mother and introduced herself and started talking to her about knitting. And they talked about knitting for a half an hour. Oh, that's and, awesome. um, and she, that was just so nice to my mother, uh, at the time. And my mother, as a, as a thank you, uh, sent Phyllis a baby sweater when uh, her first son Lincoln was born. And there's a photo in the book of Phyllis, uh, with her husband, John Y. Brown and holding baby Lincoln. And you could see Phyllis's writing on the photo, thanking my mother for the hand knit sweater. And that's where that's, that story comes from. And there's a cool story in the book about how her husband, Jimmy, the Greek thought her husband owed him a couple hundred grand for some KFC PR or something. And then he ended up saying something about him on the air and it made Phyllis cry. I thought it was a fascinating part of the book too. Yeah. Yeah. The Greek had a public relations business as well before he came on the air and uh, he had done some PR for, uh, for Kentucky fried chicken, which was uh, John Y. Brown's company. John Y. Brown bought it from Colonel Sanders when Colonel Sanders just had one restaurant and it was John Y.'s idea to expand it uh, into a, a, na- a national and then international chain of thousands of restaurants. And I love the Colonel's uh, line when he was interviewed about it two years after the fact. He felt that uh, John Y. had shorted him on what he paid for it. Uh, and he said he over-influenced me to sell. So uh, John Y. Uh, John Y. Uh, hired the Greek, apparently, to do some PR. Uh, the Greek thought he owed him another 100000 that John Y. said he didn't owe him. Phyllis was stuck in the middle, and one day on the air, John, uh, the Greek called John Y a son of a bitch on the air and uh, made Phyllis leave the set crying right after he said that. Uh, the Greek could be a real son of a gun, uh, nasty guy when yeah. he wanted to. And I understand and, a little bit from the book because, I mean, he watched his mother and his aunt get murdered, and he had. Children die of cystic fiber. I mean, real stuff happened in his life. That yeah, he had he had a tough life himself. Yeah, we didn't talk much uh, about the it, fall of it, the Greek. I mean, no, it's very well covered, so I didn't feel like we had to get into it. But I do feel like you provided some extra context of where he might have had some of those thoughts with the SI article. Did do you feel a little bit of empathy for him that he wasn't ill intended? Yeah, absolutely. Same, same. You know. He, you know, he, he wasn't a, a, he was a smart guy, but he, he wasn't uh, educated probably be, beyond the eighth grade. You know, he, he, like I said, he grew up in a town that was basically a steel town with casinos. And uh, he, he always liked to say he was 25 years old before he found out that gambling was illegal. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, when he said those controversial things in 1988, when he was asked about why black, uh, why, uh, what he thought about Martin Luther King day, he said the black, why he thought black players were better than white players and why they <clears throat> ran faster and jumped higher. And, uh, you know, I, I think what the Greeks said, was not necessarily untrue if you look at the Sports Illustrated article 
that he got uh, most of his information from. But he just said it indelicately. And right. at that time, the way it went out, it went out uh, like uh, something would go out today like wildfire. And uh, uh, he, he uh, was fired by CBS before the day was up. So, And I just feel bad a, because, <clears throat> sorry, Rich, I just feel a little bit bad because I feel like if you don't know much about him and you, you mention him, it's like, oh, didn't he get fired for being a racist? Right, exactly. That's exactly what everybody thinks. And I think there's another side to it, and I try to tell it. Yeah, and, and it's uh, it's one of many things that make this one of my favorite books in the history of the book club. Hundreds of books over 10 years. Again, it's called You Are Looking Live by Rich Podolsky, How the NFL Today Revolutionized Sports Broadcasting. And, of course, it's available in hardcover and also in ebook formats. You can get it you know, on Apple or uh, on the Google Play Store, wherever Google sells books, and of course Barnes and Noble, or wherever you buy the hardcovers as well. I love yeah. this book. I love all the time you gave me today. I know we only t- the tip of the iceberg, which will be good because anyone who wants to buy this book for their dad or their brother or whoever, their mother, someone who loves a good TV story for Christmas, it would be perfect for that. And uh, they can listen to this interview as just a tip, and then get into the into the book as well. Any last words, uh, Rich? Steve, uh, just to continue what you're saying, it's uh, also available on Amazon. And Amazon has already, it just came out on Amazon last Friday. And Amazon has already ranked it the number one new sports release. Boom. Uh, and uh, actually, they have a little bit of a backup getting the book of uh, a week or two. Uh, and if you don't mind paying, uh, Amazon discounts it. So if you don't mind pay, paying a, uh, a buck or two more, it's available uh, right away on uh, Barnes and Noble, who is not has not run out of it yet. So uh, yeah, our our publisher has rushed another thousand copies to Amazon. It's got more that's demand a, than the iPhone 13. Problem. Yeah, it's got more demand than the iPhone 13, and unbelievable blurbs on the back of this thing. I mean, Tony Kornheiser, Bob Costas, Howard Katz. Chris Fowler, Leslie Visser, Tim Brando. I mean, you're a connected dude, Rich. Those are some good if blurbs. You, if, you'll, if you'll allow me, I'd yeah. like to read the blurb, blurb from Tony Kornheiser, who I think is a legend. the biggest star on sports television. He is a legend. Yes. Tony Kornheiser said that NFL Today show was simply the greatest pregame show of all time, and everybody for the last 40 years has tried to copy it. Amazing. Let me get you out of here on this. A tip, to, a tip of the hat to Tony there. Let me get you out of here on this. What's the second best show of all pregame show of all time? Uh, I think it's Game Day with uh, Chris Berman. Good call. Good call. I like it. This was a pleasure yeah, but, and an honor for me, Rich. Go ahead. Yeah, you finish up on that thought. Yeah, I, 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 I did love Brian Gumble on NBC. He was, he, he was also great to watch. So I can't. I'm not knocking him in the least. Berman and Jackson I, I crew love, had I, something with that show. And they had time, too. I mean, yeah. I think it got up to 90 minutes, that show. So they could really stretch their legs and really get into all the games and stuff, too. And not bound by one league or the other, right? They had the whole NFL, as opposed to just AFC or NFC stories, too, which may be an advantage. Fabulous, fabulous yeah. stuff. Yeah. There was nothing more fun than ESPN in the early days. Thank you so much, Rich. I appreciate you. Hey, um, uh, th- there's a, uh, 
a book coming out uh, on a on Bino Cook, um, who you, you probably should know about. Of course. And the name name of the book is "Haven't They Suffered Enough," which <laughs> was uh, Bino's famous line when at, uh, he was asked his uh, reaction to uh, Major League Baseball giving all the Iran hostages lifetime passes to baseball. His comment was, haven't they suffered enough? Uh, Bino and I have the same birthday, September 1st. Oh, yeah, September 1st? Yeah. Yeah, me, yeah. me you Bino, that, and... You ought to look that book up. Me, Bino, and former uh, former NHL star Brian Bellows, of course. But. Yeah, uh, Bino has that great line in my book uh, when... Uh, Pete Rozelle went before Congress and said only 2% of the viewers uh, actually bet on the games. And Bino said, well, if that's true, they all live on my block. <laughs> that's great. That is great. Let's go out on that. That was a great one. So for the great uh, Bino Cook, may he rest in peace. Thank you, Rich. Thanks so much, Steve. I really enjoyed it. I want to thank Rich Podolsky and, of course, Jonathan Vilma for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can hear this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash sports casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Don't forget about our brother podcast, the 24-inch podcast. Last week, we did a new episode uh, about the Hulk Hogan career stop in Hershey, Pennsylvania in 1985 for Saturday night's main event Halloween theme. For more information at number two, number four inch podcast on Twitter, email number two, number four inch podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we do that show bi-weekly. And for more information, join our Facebook group, uh, search 24 inch podcast, ask to join, and we'll sign you up. It's a great group. I think you'll like it. Speaking of like it, I like greetings from Allentown. Uh, Peter Winson at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter uh, for his main show, Greetings from Allentown. He also does Greetings from Allentown Live with Keithy. Uh, and they've been breaking down the 1991 SummerSlam and doing a great job of it. Uh, also, uh, I want to mention that I will be on the Place to Be Nation pop feed uh, next week talking about Dana Carvey's movie, Opportunity Knocks, which I'm a lifelong defender and lover of. Uh, so if you're interested in that, subscribe to the Place to Be Nation pop feed uh, and um, you can find me there. All right. One last thing for me today. And uh, the other night, the Atlanta Braves uh, won the championship. Uh, they became the World Series champion. Uh, and I've been a Braves fan for a long time. Uh, one of my longest uh, running fandoms. Uh, 1989 or so, 1990. Uh, I started watching baseball every single day. I really liked the A's. You know, the Bash Brothers. But there was a problem. I could only watch them during the playoffs. And then a game here or there on ESPN or whatever. 
but then thanks to TBS, I could watch the team every day. And to me, baseball is an everyday thing. Not necessarily watching it in 2021, but certainly following the score every day. Alerts on your phone every day. Listening to the radio a little bit every day. Watching the games. It's a, you got to get in the grind with the team to really get the most out of baseball. Uh, and that's why I started to love the Braves, because I could be a part of the grind every day. And it was a grind that got great right away into my fandom. You know, 1991, worst to first, and Tom Glavin, and John Smoltz, and Steve Avery, and eventually Greg Maddox, and my favorite player, Dave Justice. Uh, and they were just such a cool team. And they played in the playoffs every year, and they made the World Series, and they won it in 1995. And they went every year pretty much right up until 2005 or 2006. And then kind of the the edge fell off and they had to kind of rebuild. And Bobby Cox was gone and John Scherholz was gone. And then right around 2016, when they hired uh, Coach Snit, they started to rebuild it. And Acuna and Albies and Freeman and this new core emerged and they've won four division titles in a row. And last year, uh, they were kind of the first thing that kind of nudged me out of my sports slumber post-COVID um, with uh, their run to a three games to one lead in the NLCS against the Dodgers, which, of course, they blew, and the Dodgers won the World Series. And this year, they were a really frustrating team the first half of the year because they never did anything more than a day in a row. Like, pretty much from April until August, it was win a game, lose a game, win a game, lose a game, win a game, lose a game. But lucky the Mets never broke away. The Phillies never broke away. And they were in it. A five-game series right before uh, the trade deadline. They won three out of five against the Mets. And they were buyers. And uh, Cunha had been injured. And they rebuilt the outfield with four new outfielders. And you know the story by now. Uh, And they were one of the best teams in baseball, if not the best team in baseball, after the All-Star break. And nobody counted on them to do anything in the playoffs. Everyone thought they were the worst playoff team. I very much thought they would beat the Brewers, and they did. And then I thought, this was my thought, maybe the Dodgers and the Giants will beat themselves up, and the team that shows up in the NLCS against us will be very much like the team that the Braves were in the NLCS in 1993 after their insane pennant race with the Giants. And that's exactly what happened. And the Braves were able to win, and then they went to the World Series, and they won that. And for the second time in 2021, one of my teams was champion. And for the second time in 2021, I watched it with my daughter. Now, the Euros, that was easy. It was 4 o'clock on a Sunday. But the World Series is late, too late, and everyone knows the stories and have talked about the story of it being too late. But with three outs left in the bottom of the ninth, I said, you know what? I'm going to get my daughter up. I'm going to watch this with Paula. Because the only thing cooler than watching your team win a championship is watching your team win a championship with my kid. And she might be a little tired at school tomorrow, but you know what? I'm going to do it. And I went in there, and she was sound asleep. And I woke her up, and I said, baby, you want to watch the Braves win the World Series with me? And she did. And she came out, and we watched each out, high five after each out. And she had been kind of staying up with me to watch the games on the weekend. Um, all throughout the playoffs. Staying up late, watching the games with dad, the ones that were on Saturday nights. So she had kind of gotten into the routine, high-fiving after outs and cheering on Will Smith, who 
made an ass out of me because he was incredible, uh, despite my hope that he would be banished to AAA at some point uh, during the season. He was great. Uh, but it was just so special, and, you know, that's two in a row, like I said, with Paula. And, you know, ever since she's been born, like, everything in my life now is better with her. You know, listening to music is better with her. Watching the A-Team is better with her. Doing podcasts is better with her. Everything is better with her. Um, so it was just a really special moment. And I'm really proud of the Braves. And I'm really happy for friends like Ford Kendrick uh, that he got to celebrate this. You know, I'm disappointed. Friends like Calvin Crowell weren't here to celebrate this, although I know he was looking on and looking over this team up in heaven. Shout out to Cal. And I'm excited for Bobby Cox, who, much like Tommy Lasorda with the Dodgers, probably doesn't have a lot of time left to see the Braves win another World Series. So I'm glad he got the opportunity to do so. And I'm excited for Coach Snit, who over 40 years in the organization finally got a chance to be champion. Excited for Freddie Freeman. All those years he battled with the Braves, the face of the Braves, the MVP last year. He gets a chance to be a champion. The great outfield of Riley and Swanson and Albies and Freeman. All the pitchers. Max Fried pitched incredible. The Braves Game 6 World Series legacy now is not just Tom Glavin, but Tom Glavin and Max Fried. And Ian Anderson. And Charlie Morton, who broke his leg and still got three outs. Really just a cool team. A really cool team. And a cool championship. And you know with all my teams that aren't the Saints. And Italy. I kind of got to keep them at arm's length a little bit. Oklahoma football especially. Sabres hockey. Braves baseball. Oklahoma basketball. I keep them a little bit at arm's length. Because it's self-preservation. You know I can't expend the emotional energy I do for the Saints twice in a weekend to be the same person when it comes to the Sooners. I watch them. I love them. I follow them. But if it's not fun watching the game, if they're losing, I turn it off. If they're up 28-7, to I turn it off because nothing left good can happen. They're either going to win the game or blow the game, and I don't want to be a part of that. And the Braves are the same way. They're doing well. Great. I'm watching it. They lose a game. I turn my phone off for the night. I'm done following them. I'm done listening to the game. I love listening to baseball on the radio, and every year I get the MLB package on the app to listen to the games on the radio. I listen to probably 100 Braves games on the uh, on that app this year. And if it's not going good, I turn it off, put Stern back on. Uh, but this team was very much off and good. Once August came, obviously that first Half of the year was so frustrating. But then in August on through, they were in a true pennant race because there was no wild card to bail them out. They were either going to win the NL East or not make the playoffs. And it was an everyday thing. And that series against Philadelphia, the last week of the season that they swept, that was life or death for the division. And they got it done and they won it and they went to the playoffs and they beat Milwaukee and they beat the Dodgers and they won the World Series. And I watched it with my daughter and it was freaking awesome. I loved it. And like I said, I love everything all that much more when I do it with Paula. She makes everything just that much better. So I'm glad I got to do that. And I'm glad I got to interview Jonathan Vilma today. And I want to thank Kenny Albert and Megan from Fox Sports for helping me with that again. 
And I want to thank everyone out there who listens to this show. I want to thank Fred for his tweets, Ian for his emails, everyone out there. I appreciate everyone so much. Be careful when you're holding candles. It's very hard this time of year. Just way too hard to hold a candle. So be careful there. Uh, And just have a great weekend. Spend time with your people. Tell them you love them. Uh, And have a great week. I'm